Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Professor Sharon Bessel from the Crawford School of Public Policy, and I'm back this week with the wonderful Dr. Anagrada Hunter, and together we are still holding the pod hostage to our special series, exploring the ways in which economics has created problems for our world, and the ways in which economics, particularly new ways of thinking about the economy, might bring about solutions. Hi, Anagrada. Hi, Sharon. It's great to see you again. Thank you. It's good to be back. As listeners will know, Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Don't forget to check out our degree programs and our short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study and find out about the amazing things that we have on offer. Now, last week... We were here with Professor John Quiggan, who helped us map some important principles in economics and to give us a bit of a better understanding of issues like consumption and growth and what they mean within our economic system. We talked a little about the trading of goods and the way that has been so central to our system of economics for such a long time. Although in the past few decades, the trade in information has grown significantly. And if you missed that pod, go back and have a listen. It's a great way of framing this series. Absolutely it is. And I I still really, we've been thinking back over that conversation with John Quiggan last week. Um, I think it gave us a really great introduction to today's discussion. And today we thought we'd try and solve climate change by thinking about economics. And we've got a full hour to do it. So I think it's quite possible. We'll probably have time left at the end. We can talk about all sorts of other things. Um, Sharon, I think I'd like to start today by framing it through a little bit of storytelling. Um, And it's a story that uh, maybe some of the listeners and uh, some of the people in this room have heard before, uh, particularly thinking about climate change as a threat. Climate change has been a serious challenge in Australia for many decades, but 2019 saw a palpable shift in Australia from what was a future risk to us to something that was very much here and now. 
Beginning in January 2019, we had that extraordinary heatwave across New South Wales and the ACT that was unusual in both severity and duration. It really got my attention as a clinician working as a doctor. And so we went into one of the worst years on record for environmental disasters in Australia. We had devastating drought. We had unprecedented temperatures. We didn't have any rain. We had rivers that dried up. We had towns that ran out of water. And of course, we finished the year with the, burst, with the worst bushfire season in Australia's history, one in which 12 million Australians breathed hazardous bushfire smoke and 24 million hectares burned, killing or displacing more than a billion, perhaps two billion animals. It was an unprecedented event. So after the fires were out and the smoke had cleared, I remember in January sitting in Melbourne at the National Climate Emergency Conference feeling quite overwhelmed by what we had experienced and what I knew we were going to face in the years ahead. Tackling climate change is not just about transitioning our sources of energy, although obviously that's really important. Climate change affects all of our activity in a much more complex manner, and particularly the carbon footprint affects the the activities that we enjoy. And so for a while last year, I was talking with a lot of friends about a game I called Turn the Tap Off, Imagine what happens when you get up in the morning and we've just miraculously stopped burning fossil fuels. What happens next? And in Canberra, or in this region particularly, we've got some inbuilt capacity. We've got renewable energy, and so our lights will still work. But it's a really interesting process to go through the events of the day and the sorts of things that we need and we want as part of the the work and the lives that we lead. And so going through getting up and getting dressed and the clothes and the carbon footprint that's often in the manufacturing of the clothes that we wear through to what happens in the kitchen, the food that we eat. And that was my personal point of, of difficulty when I realised that the, the coffee that I, on which I very much depend has a carbon footprint, which is very hard to negate um, with Australia's transfer to renewable energy. This game has been used in many more sophisticated descriptions of the challenge that we face. But the core message from this is that greenhouse gases and a consumption of goods uh, within the lives that we lead are strongly linked. So... How the question for today's discussion really comes back to, does our current neoliberal economic system relate to climate change? What are those interrelationships? Does it cause climate change? Can we adjust our economic systems to solve one of the most pressing challenges of our time? Anna Greta, I'm I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. And I think like you and like so many people, I was completely overwhelmed by what happened over the summer just past. And some of those questions you raise, I think, are the things that we, we have to confront. And one of the things that I've been reflecting on, and I guess lots of people have during this period of pandemic, is just how much I travel, particularly for work, and what that means in terms of emissions. And I guess I've always been able to justify that by saying, well, the work I do is important. (laughs) Of course, we all think our work's terribly important. Um, But I guess we are learning now that we can communicate globally in other ways. So on issues like international travel, I think we now have a moment to really rethink the way we do things. Mm. But the other thing that just kept coming to me again and again over summer and and since 
is that the legacy that we are leaving for future generations. And, you know, a lot of my work is with children and young people. And this has got to be the greatest issue of intergenerational justice mm. that, you know, probably that the world has ever faced. Absolutely. And so that, it was at that end of summer and as we transitioned, so I remember thinking overwhelmingly that we had a serious challenge, actually. Decarbonising our economy is so complex and so difficult and it you know, asks really all of us to think about how we live. And then we did it, or we, we did it for a short period of time. We, we lived in an economic system where we had really significant reductions in both supply and demand, and our consumption changed uh, measurably during that early period of the pandemic. So we've had a little taste of perhaps some of the things that, or the levers that we might be able to pull, I think, on the carbon pollution front. So today we get to delve into some of these issues a bit deeper with two amazing guests. I'm so delighted to introduce Tim Hollow and Mark Howden, um, and it's great to have them with us. Tim Hollow is Executive Director of the Green Institute, where he leads thinking around ecological politics, the rights of nature, universal basic income and participatory democracy, and is now on my list of guest lecturers for a couple of my courses <laughs> here at Crawford. Um, <laughs> Tim has a long history of involvement with policy and politics, working for several environmental groups and as an advisor for Christine Meon from my home state, I would just add. He is also a current visiting fellow at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance, Regnet, and he is a great musician with the band Foreplay. So maybe Tim will actually play us out this afternoon. <laughs> Tim, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Professor Mark Howden is Director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University, also on my list of guest lecturers. He is an honorary professor at Melbourne University, a vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and a member of the Australian National Climate Science Advisory Commission. He was on the US Federal Advisory Committee for the third National Climate Assessment and contributes to several major national and international science and policy advisory bodies. Mark helped to develop both the national and international greenhouse inventories that have been a fundamental part of the Paris Agreement and has assessed the sustainable ways to reduce emissions. He has been a major contributor to the IPCC since 1991 with roles in the second, third, fourth, fifth and now sixth assessment reports. And he was part of the, the group that shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize uh, with other PCC participants and with Al Gore. So an amazing uh, biography and amount of uh, experience and expertise to bring to this panel. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Sharon. Well, it's great to have these two uh, people with us today to talk about how economics and climate change might be related. My first question I'll open to the panel for either of you. Do neoliberal economics cause climate change? Tim, maybe you'd like to start with that? I think there are a couple of ways of answering that. The The simplest is to say, yes, absolutely. The longest is to say that I think they're both actually symptoms of underlying causes um, and that we can go back a very long way to think about. Um, in terms of the way human society has evolved essentially around um, around extractivism, around the idea that we as humans – are entitled to simply act on this planet, um, to, you know, to build walls, 
um, and to extract value from everything within those walls and to, to slowly but surely expand those walls and enclose more and more and more of, um, of the world's resources. And this has been kind of fundamental to the way, um, human society has developed over the last few thousand years. And I think neoliberalism is, is probably the, the, um, logical conclusion of that process beyond which it's kind of impossible to go. We've, we've essentially said, okay, we can enclose everything. We can extract value from everything, from all of the resources of nature, from humanity. Um, and we can just dump the waste. And we've reached a point now where we can't go any further. Um, if we continue in this direction, I think the history of humanity from here is very short. Um, but we can turn it around. So y- yes, I think it, it absolutely directly causes it, but in another sense, it's, it's a, a symptom. Mark, what do you think? What's the relationship between neoliberal economics and climate change? Yeah, a complex, I think, yeah. is one, one way of putting it. But just to sort of uh, build on what Tim said, it seems to me that, uh, Yes, there has been that that sort of view of of humans essentially as a dominant um, species with the rights to extract from anything that moves and anything that doesn't move, and and so uh, and so that's been sort of in, in a sense of framing that that goes back thousands of years, and we can you can follow this back through to things like the Bible and similar thing um, uh, written material. The and in in a sense that probably wasn't a big problem when the world that people occupied was was measured by you know hectares and kilometers so you know maybe most people in their lives may only have ever traveled a few kilometers away from their their village and 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 the biggest empires um, were were measured in thousands of kilometers they were they were sub-regional definitely sub-global We've moved past that, you know, and and I think the the original um, moves into space where where we took photos of the the Earth and and saw this you know the little blue marble in space sort of picture all of a sudden did show us that the Earth has limits, whereas previously in a sense we didn't conceptualize the Earth as having limits because of that sort of limited perspective, limited experience. And, and we, we know very well now that we're not only have those limits, but we're pushing those limits. And, and I think we would have pushed those limits almost regardless of which flavor of economic systems we had. And it may be that we've just pushed them farther and faster with a more market based system. But having said that, other alternative economic paradigms and, and, and political paradigms, such as in, in the Soviet Union or China, um, is still pushing those systems. You know, they're still in an expansionary mode. They're still using more and more resources. So I think that resource use is actually more a human, uh, element rather than a particular function of one economic paradigm versus another. The, the question that I have really is, is not so much whether sort of neoliberal and market driven economy, economics is part of the problem, um, but more a question whether it's actually a good part of the solution. And, and that's where I think the debate needs to move. I'm, I'm interested in, in kind of teasing this out a little bit more. And, and one of the key elements of the economic system that's been in place for certainly decades, but perhaps centuries, is a model that's based around extraction, as, as Tim's explained, but also economic growth. And that has depending how you measure it, but on some measures, increase people's standards of living extraordinarily. extraordinarily. Um, and one of the debates that we often hear here is that for people living in the global south, you know, it's unreasonable for people in wealthy countries to be saying, we need to rethink the models that have brought us such wealth and such comfort. 
and that you're not going to have access to those models. And I guess we see similar things playing out nationally um, in the debates, for example, around Adani and you know those debates between those who want to preserve the, the, the environment and the planet and those who are really concerned about their livelihoods. So how do we start to think about those trade-offs um, and can we think about those trade-offs and resolve them within the kind of economic model that we've got? Mark, perhaps you'd like to sure. pick that up. So, so again, a, a real tough question. <laughs> I, I guess I'd, I'd sort of um, draw a distinction between um, growth in GDP and growth in GDP per capita um, and, and versus indicators like the general progress indicator, which ta- start to take into account the negatives as well as, in a sense, the economic positives. And... And, and what we've experienced in, say, in Australia um, over the last few decades is uh, whilst we have grown in terms of GDP, uh, we've actually pretty much flatlined or perhaps even gone backwards in terms of, of GDP per capita or GNP per capita. And, and that's because our, our population growth has essentially been fueling the GDP growth. It's, our GDP growth has been very dependent on that. And that does raise questions then about that particular model, um, of, of population growth being fundamental to, to the economic well-being of, of the country and, uh, and whether we need to start rethinking that. And, and of course, COVID has imposed, um, some changes on that on us. And, and this isn't, there's no rights and wrongs here. There's just different consequences of different pathways. And I think we need to have sensible discussions, non-emotive discussions about, you know, different options there. So for me, um, splitting those things aside is, is, is important start. Um, the uh, genuine progress indicator and all the similar sorts of indexes I think are really important because all of a sudden they start to uh, take into account the net or some elements of the net sort of consequences of different pathways. So, so yes, we get the, the economic stimulus of, of particular activities, uh, but then we need to subtract the implications of that for our asset base, our natural resource asset base or the social uh, capital um, that we have. And, and so we start to see a, a more complete picture of what things cost us and what and benefits from particular sets of activities and, and, uh, uh, paradigms. And so I think that is a really important part of how we need to move forward. We need to have that much more complete accounting than we currently do. So that's a really important step. And the last point I'd make is, is I think it's really important to separate out uh, the functions and services we get from the way in which we get them. And, and so, so the big question for people in developing countries is not whether they have a right to say, we want a great standard of living such as people in Canberra have, but the question is, how can we get something akin to that, but through much, much less uh, demanding um, sets of activities in terms of resource use, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, etc.? So, so how can we have the good things without the bads? And and that actually will result or will require a huge amount of innovation, um, technological, but particularly institutional and particularly cultural, uh, which we really have only started to just see as one of the outcomes of COVID where we're starting to question some of the ways in which we've done things. 
I agree with um, with all of um, what Mark's just said. If I can kind of pick up, in a sense, maybe where you get to there. Um, in terms of also the ideas of genuine progress indicators, I think there's a, a lot of people starting to question the idea of whether this constant growth economy actually has improved our quality of life and to what extent it does and where, you know, where the boundaries lie. Um, because there's a lot of people looking around the world today, um, you know, if I think about um, you know, my adolescent kids and a lot of their friends struggling immensely with mental health challenges at the moment, with physical health challenges. There's huge numbers of people across the um, the, the Western slash Northern slash ridiculously rich world um, who are deeply unhappy, who are deeply physically unhealthy. And you'd have to ask whether, in fact, this enormous um, wealth that we've accumulated is improving our quality of life. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of research that says that, yes, of course, you need to get to a certain level. You need to get to a standard of, of, of living where you're not struggling all the time. But beyond a certain point, it's not actually adding to our quality of life. And the economic system underlying it, the neoliberal system, but as Mark pointed out as well, it's not actually just capitalism and neoliberalism. The same goes for China's economy. Um, the the drive to consume more um, that is built into that system actually forces things like the advertising industry um, to create demand where no demand previously existed, for instance. And there's some fascinating stuff written by um, people within the advertising industry saying that actually the way their industry works is to deliberately make people unhappy such that they feel that they need to consume something to make themselves happy. So this this growth economy, this wealth economy that we have has certainly, I think, for a, for a huge number of people, gotten to a point where it's it's now decreasing our quality of life, not increasing it. And we need to grapple with that idea and think about what what is the kind of the level of 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 standard of living that we need to reach, which is appropriate, which will make us happy and healthy, but is not going to start to you know run down the resources of the planet and and the resources of 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 our physical and mental health. Mm. And certainly the model that we have is making us very time poor. Oh, yes. Which has such terrible implications for health and well-being. Well, Sharon, this comes back to conversations that we've been having over the last month or so about the role of caring in our society and the way in which we value that. And I guess one of the points that I took from the conversation with John Quiggan, and we've touched on it today, is the difference between consumptogenic growth, the things where we're buying stuff and, and extracting resources, and the ways in which we might shift value onto non-consumptogenic activities, things like watching someone play music, like caring for an elder, like caring for a child, uh, like looking after our community. And so that, that may be part of our solutions focus. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is the, the the exciting part about these conversations that we're having because it's opening up different ways of thinking about the way we live, but also what is an adequate standard of living or what's a high standard of living? Because the question that I just asked of, of both of you had underpinning it the assumption that whatever it is we get from growth leads to a better standard of living. And I think your answers have demonstrated that that that's not necessarily the case. We can actually flip this around and start to think quite differently. And once we do that, that's when we open up the possibilities for solutions. 
So I do want to slip one more question in here, which is a rather lengthy question. So, so a warning that this has got a bit of a story behind the question. I was at a, at a conference um, at the Human Development and Capabilities Conference in London last year. Now, here's an excellent example of someone traveling when they really didn't need to, but let's leave that aside for a moment. And there was a debate around um, the, the ways in which changing our way of living might impact on gender equality. And some of the discussions and assumptions left me feeling rather uneasy. And I've been having this conversation with anyone who will engage. And so I've got a captive audience, so I'm going to put the question to you. So clearly overconsumption and overproduction and the way we live is one of the drivers of, of climate change. And we need to change that. And if we think about consumer goods, there's so much stuff that's not necessary. And there's so much stuff that's just designed for obsolescence. And so that's clearly part of the problem. But there are also many consumer goods that make life much easier, particularly when we think about domestic work and the way in which so many consumer goods have made life easier for women, have enabled women to join the workforce without necessarily shedding the burdens um, of keeping things going in the home. And we know from lots of time use and unpaid work studies that women still bear the, the majority of work in the house. And we also know that car transport is a major problem for climate change and we need to change the way we move around. But for women who are time poor and have greatest responsibility for taking children to school and to other activities, public transport or biking is often just not feasible, particularly for people who don't or can't afford to live in areas that are well serviced by public transport. So that was a long introduction to a question, but I'm really keen to hear from each of you about how we can address some of these really critical issues that we're talking about in ways that don't inadvertently deepen gender inequality. And it strikes me that this is one of the things that we do need to think about. Um, and the debate that I talked about in London was about trade-offs with someone arguing, well, some people are just going to lose out. Um, and I would be pretty concerned if we agreed that gender equality is where we lose out. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this because I think it's an important conversation for us to keep having. Absolutely. Um, I think what this highlights is the intersectionality of all of these questions really um, and that what we need to be thinking about is is what are some of the models that we can move to that actually improve, um, you know, that, that don't think of – that don't think of it as a trade-off – but actually look for the co-benefits that you can find so often. And it's uh, obviously about gender. There's obviously issues around racial justice and economic justice. And, you know, Mark already talked about, you know, just transitions and that kind of thing and the, the, um, the importance of, of embedding, um, justice across the spectrum, um, into, into what we're thinking about. So I think, you know, um, rather than looking for a, you know, a particular solution to a particular problem, um, which might cause inadvertent extra problems. We need to be sitting down together and, and nutting out. Okay. So where are, where are the co-benefits that we can find? One of the things that, that I think about a lot, and maybe we'll come to this idea a bit later is something like a universal basic income as a way of kind of, you know, dramatically shifting the whole basis of the conversation, which will open up time for people in their lives, deal with that time poverty, deal with the, you know, the challenges of juggling work and, and family and hobbies and fun and all of those kinds of things. 
Um, but there are, yeah, there are plenty of ways I think that we can, we can hold that intersectionality in mind and look for the, look for the co-benefits rather than the, the trade-offs. Mark, I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts on on that issue and also whether these are issues that you hear kind of being discussed and, and if so, how within some of the global fora that, that you're so so much a part of? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question and, and, and Tim's, I think, got a, a key part of the answer, which is that we need to have much more integrated uh, approaches so that we we see things from a whole range of different perspectives and uh, and. And, and at least make informed decisions and 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 you know equitable and just decisions at the same time, uh, and and that brings I think into into play the importance of uh, having having effective research, having effective communication systems, having effective governance system, having effective um, political system, so that different voices can be heard and 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 contribute to that informed discussions. And so, so there's there's a whole series of things there which which uh, you know wrap together, uh, and and we need to make progress on I think all of them uh, at the same time. So you know, climate change is just one of many sustainable development goals, for example, one of seventeen, and um, uh, yet it's it. it Links into many of them, many of the other ones, and so, so it's important to think about this as a as a very broad human development agenda, rather than separating out one priority versus another. And and where we, if we ha- are forced to, because often policy has to fo- you know focus on particular um, priorities, uh, that it goes through rigorously goes through those sets of understanding co benefits, trade offs, um, synergies, etc. And so, so I'd argue that. Absolutely, we need to have that uh, you know much better debate, much more informed debate, uh, much more sort of co-designed solutions, so that we don't end up making things worse accidentally. The the other part of it, I think, there is a there are you know clear um, gender questions that come in. So so an obvious one is is in terms of um, women's ability, reproductive um, uh, control, um, their ability to to manage their own lives in developing countries. So what we've seen is, is two of the key things that are linked in there is one is prosperity, so general prosperity, and the other is education. And so if we're going into a situation where uh, to manage climate change, we're pushing down on GDP, um, which is often closely linked to uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions, the risk is that we also push down on that um, development of prosperous uh, systems which actually give uh, women those that ability to control their own lives in ways that they haven't in the past. And so, so we absolutely don't want to do that. What we want to do is actually um, lift the capacity of those people um, that give them better lives at the same time as pushing down on the greenhouse gas emissions and all of the other bads that we're accumulating across our economies and across our nations. And, and that will require a degree of smarts um, that we really haven't sort of applied to, to these big global questions because over the last you know handful of years, the push has been against multilateral sort of global perspectives uh, and it's been taking much more sort of you know bilateral uh limited and much more narrower perspectives and i think we need to broaden that out mm, absolutely as someone wise recently said uh the tech solutions might be easy the human elements much harder yeah. yeah it's a great spot to leave the conversation for a moment we'll take a very short break and we'll be back Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. So before the break, we were talking about some of the challenges. And what we want to do now is to move on to talking more about some of the ways forward. Tim, you've been part of the New Economy Network Australia, a network of organisations and individuals working to create an ecologically healthy and socially just society by transforming Australia's economic system. What are some of the most promising and exciting ideas to come out of that network? So what's really interesting about that network is it's it's very much rethinking the economy from the grassroots up. Um, what I think goes hand in hand with with where I started this conversation about this this idea of extractivism and kind of building walls is a very top down management system that that we've kind of evolved over you know these millennia um, post you know, indigenous communities around the world. Um, and that's very much part of our economic structures at the moment. Um, a, a, a kind of a, a top-down view of the economy, an eagle's view soaring above and kind of looking at this big picture. The new economic network kind of reverses that and says, well, hang on a second. The economy is just a fancy way of thinking about how we feed ourselves and how we exchange stuff and how we get things and how we work. Um, what happens if we, if we think about that from, from, our perspective on the ground. And it's talking about, um, ideas of kind of, you know, of, of commons economies based on, um, a lot of the work of Eleanor Ostrom and others, um, really groups getting together in their own communities and, and talking about and building ways that we can feed each other, um, that we can exchange goods with each other, that we can work locally. Um, there's a whole lot of work going on around cooperatives, um, a huge amount of work going on around, you know, renewable energy cooperatives, food cooperatives, health cooperatives, um, so that we in the community can have control of, um, have agency in our own lives, um, in the way we run our economy. A lot of work around, um, urban farming. Um, and there's some fantastic stuff going on here in Canberra at the moment in the urban farming space, converting people's gardens and, and verges and things like that to food production, which is then being distributed within a couple of kilometers of where it's grown. So yeah, that's, that's the idea behind the, behind the new economics network is, is, is reversing that view. And, and from that perspective as well, we can think more about, okay, what are different ways, um, that we can measure 
what's going on. Um, so ideas like Mark was talking about with genuine progress indicators or, or the donut economics model, um, different views of, um, of currencies. There's people in that network talking about the, the role potentially of local currencies so that you can actually have local communities, um, keeping the exchange value within their own networks rather than sending it off, um, to these big invisible, um, banks elsewhere around the world. Um, and ideas like universal basic income are part of that as well, different ways of thinking about how we support each other um, in all sorts of directions. So just taking that a little bit further from, from that work and from the work that you've been doing at the Green Institute, what are your thoughts about the future of work? Should we mm. be thinking about work as we traditionally do as paid employment? Should we be thinking more about livelihoods? Um if we think about universal basic income, you know, presumably we need a healthy tax base in order to be able to fund that. So we need a way of being able to, to produce the revenue base for that. But what's your thinking about how work fits into all of this mm. as you kind of imagine a different future? I think there will always be a role for, for work, for paid labour. Um, what I think is the problem at the, at, at the moment and has been, it's really quite a, a, a recent phenomenon, a, 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 an industrial and post-industrial phenomenon where we've basically turned humans into a resource whose value is to be extracted as well as the land and everything else. Um, and the way we do that is by ensuring that the only way we can survive is to sell our labour, ensure that the only way we value each other is for how much we can sell our labour for. Um, and universal basic income changes that by, by disentangling the capacity to survive from your labour. Um, it says that in the same way that, that in a society like Australia, we say that everybody is entitled to a base level of healthcare, a base level of education, we should be, everybody should be entitled to a base level of income that says there will be no poverty. Um, and by doing that, as I say, you disentangle this extractivist role for labour. Um, so there will always be, you know, jobs for people to do. There will always be things for people to do that that have exchange value. And that's, a, that's I think, you know, a, a critical part of our society really as well. Um, Hannah Arendt has a, a really kind of useful way of, of looking at the different roles in society of 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 work and labour and thinking about, you know, our public life as a way in which we also work. And, and there's all sorts of things that we can do in that space. Um, labour is a separate space where you are doing something for someone else for exchange value, basically. Um, so, yeah, the, the future of work, I think, will be diverse. The future of work will be all sorts of different things and, and people playing different roles in their communities. Um, and some of that will be paid labour and we can, yeah, the, the critical thing is that we, we disentangle it from the capacity to survive. Mm. So we started with can we use economics to solve climate change and we're really firmly landing in, in work in the way that we structure our society. Mark Howden, what are your thoughts on this as an approach to de decarbonising our economy? Again, you know, really complex because these are things that are built built so heavily into our, our ways of thinking, let alone our, our systems. And, and you know, if if you know, you, t you sort of think about the sort of barter economy. Uh, you know, why why don't we use that more broadly? And and 
you know, my take on this is tax is the answer. You know, um, governments find it very hard to to control and to to get monetary value out of a barter economy, and and so they don't have a tax um, income, you know, a tax stream and income stream from that, and and so they don't like it. So so we find ways in which which governments move that out of our systems, and so we, in a sense, regularize, uh, um, you know, the way we live in our transactions um, uh, on that basis, and so. Uh, all automatically it hives off you know a whole range of possibilities um, simply because the governments don't like that but of course that that income stream for governments is exactly what would be the governments would use to pay for um, universal basic income and health care and defense and all the rest of it so so in a sense we we want governments to have income streams uh, there, there was an old old saying I think it was J.K. Galbraith or something like someone like that who said something like, "I don't mind paying taxes because taxes buy me civilization." And and we actually need to remember that when we we see huge corporations paying zero tax in Australia, um, taking our coal out of our ground and getting paid for it, um, you know, it's pretty outrageous. <laughs> and and so we, we we need to be thinking about, um, yeah, actually, government is valuable uh, taxes. Are valuable, um, and and we need to then say, okay, well, what is an appropriate level of taxation and type of taxation um, that allows us uh, the freedom to innovate with different systems, but at the same time gives us that that stability, that ability for governments to do good things for us, and so, and and we don't have those sorts of debates here in Australia, and and yet I think we should, um, and and this is a great time for them. Uh, you know, we've upended quite a few of our our. Um, Ideas about what's normal, and and so so there's a degree of potential receptivity there, which hasn't been there before, and uh, because you know when we we're all working op- operating in the old world, you know, hopping on planes here and there, and uh, you know not thinking about um, where we're going and what we're doing and the consequences. Um, well, this is a this is an opportunity to rethink, and so we should take advantage of that. But um, and 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 just sort of that you you mentioned, Tim, the the fact that. We as people are now just another resource, you know, just an, another part of the the global jigsaw of, of the sort of neoliberal economics, and that comes out, you know, frequently in things like uh, with social media. You know, the the comment that you know if you're not buying the product, you are the product, and so so we're now just a product. You know, we we are, you know, all of that sort of Orwellian sort of ideas about you know just being a number or just being a cog in the machine. In many ways, we've actually turned into cogs in the machine, and we've done that willingly. And and that's because uh, some really smart operators have actually figured out how our psychology works and and how to worm their way into that and 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 tear apart some of the things that we find dear. And and so so we're often doing things where I don't think we're very conscious of of what we're giving up. Uh, um, in the pursuit of some of these mirages of, of uh, uh, prosperity and consumption. We're talking about climate change and economics, and so it would be hard not to talk about carbon pricing uh, for at least a few moments, and I think that might be the last part of our discussion today. Mark, you wrote about uh, carbonomics as a potential theory, uh, ways in which we might be able to include uh, the environmental footprint in the sort of consumption that we have. Do you, do you think that we should be pursuing that more at this point in time? Yeah, so so that that was a particular paper, which was which was a little <laughs> bit of provocation, I think, yes. um, which was just saying, well, what would happen if we if we actually constructed a a currency uh, which instead of 
whatever we currently think of as a currency, and I'll get back to that in a sec, um, we actually did it on the basis of, of carbon or, or greenhouse gas emissions. And and so it, it, it's a different concept than putting a carbon price or an emissions price. It's actually constructing your currency around this. So so if, as a country, we stored more carbon than we emitted or greenhouse gases than we emitted, our currency would go up. And so our, our capacity to pay for and buy things would actually increase. One, there's many challenges to this, and, and one of them, of course, is that uh, the world isn't unidimensional, and and everything doesn't <laughs> run around greenhouse gases, and and arguably should have a, a multi-dimensional uh, sort of currency which reflects the you know the broader set of goods and bads, and you can probably start to approach that if you take into account a a whole of systems accounting, so it's the it's you know economic accounting and environmental accounting and social accounting, and. Uh, and then um, if you actually start to think about that, that does add up all the goods and bads, and that's the basis on which we could start to rethink our currencies. And um, and again, we're a long way away from that. To, and to illustrate how far away we are, if, if you go back you know, decades and centuries, is that our currencies were based on something physical. Um, so, so it was based on production or it was based on gold, you know, so we had the gold standard for a long time. And, and then we moved away from that. And so, so our currencies are no longer not only based, not based on anything physical, they're actually not based on anything at all. And that's why we're printing money. So we're actually creating currency out of nothing at the moment. And so we've, you know, incredibly divorced the nature of money from anything physical, anything real. And so, so perhaps the solution is to start to think of currencies back in terms of things which are real and which are not lumps of gold, but things which really matter to people and livelihoods and the environment. And so just, you know, it's probably going to be a long-term conversation, but we need to start thinking about that. And and we started off talking about different types of economic systems, you know, market-oriented you know, versus alternatives. And, and in a way, the, the challenge for us is if you've got the you know, a spectrum between, uh, you know, entirely market-based systems and command and control systems is just one sort of spectrum. You know, on the one hand, you've got no responsibility. On the other hand, you've got no innovation. And, and to solve these problems, we actually need both responsibility and innovation. And, and so that probably sits in the middle, which is sort of where Australia used to sit and perhaps the Scandinavian countries do sit, where we have that, that sweet combination where there is uh, government influence to identify, uh, you know, broadly held uh, public goods and, and, you know, public interests. Um, but we also have enough um, flexibility and freedom in the society to actually do the innovation that's necessary to deliver some of those. And so for, for me, um, we, we need to think about that economic slash political system and deliberately position ourselves in the middle where we have both responsibility and innovation. This leads us to the last question, which I'm going to ask both of you. If you're given the opportunity to design Australia's approach to climate change, the, the challenge I think we all recognise as one of the dominant ones for our generation – Will you restructure our economics and, and how? I think we, we have to have a conversation about what matters to people and, and where we're going as a, as a nation. And, uh, and, and we've seemed to be had a great deal of difficulty actually having those conversations in the past. So if I remember going back quite a long time now, um, there was a premier in Tasmania, uh, I think it was Bacon, and and he actually tried to have that conversation across Tasmania, but unfortunately he actually fell sick and, and subsequently died. And so that never seemed to get carried through. But I think I thought it was a great idea, you know, actually having a, a vision of what 
Tasmania, we, we, Tasmanians wanted Tasmania to look like, and which enabled people to talk about the trade-offs and the synergies and uh, the short-term and the long-term. And and for me, those conversations are really important because that starts to say what's important. And that starts to say what sort of economic system you have to have to deliver those things that are important. Couldn't agree more. It's about the conversation. It's not about it's not about somebody having the chance to redesign something from from on high. To to pick up on Mark's point about kind of command and control versus market economy, um, one of I think the the really important insights from Kate Rayworth's um, work, Donut Economics, which of course she takes from many others as well, um, and and heavily from Eleanor Ostrom, is that there's a whole world outside beyond both market and state, and that is the world of the community. That is the world of us working together to do all sorts of things. And I think that's what we have to do in terms of redesigning our economy, in terms of redesigning our politics and in terms of facing up to climate change is to actually have those conversations together, all of us in our communities working together about how are we to live? Um, how are we to how are we to survive this century and how are we to not just survive this century but actually work out ways that we can thrive in this century um, amidst all of the... Um, Stuff that's going to be hitting fans around us for the for the coming decades, um, and that's got to be that's got to be us in our communities working it out together. And I think there will be a wonderful diversity of ways in, and that's the thing that Eleanor Ostrom talks about so so powerfully is that there there's no one answer to this question of how we should how we should trade, how we should you know work things together. It's got to be done by each community, and th- and there are models that she sets out for for the kinds of things that make it work which are all about making sure that everybody, every voice can be heard and that you have good dispute resolution mechanisms and that you have kind of clear boundaries but also permeable boundaries between your groups and all of that kind of thing. But it's fundamentally about how you have the conversations together um, and and that's that path through, which isn't necessarily between market and state. It's beyond them. It's something else. It's a different way of doing things. With that comment in mind, I think it's the ideal place to draw this fantastic conversation to a close, although I would like it to continue for some hours. But um, Tim and Mark, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. When Anna Greta and I were, were thinking about this series, we wanted to do exactly what you've been talking about, to trigger some debates, to trigger some debates about the hard issues, um, but also to, to encourage a conversation about how we move forward and how we think differently and creatively about the challenges that we face. And you have given us some fantastic food for thought for that. So um, thank you both. And we have a very active group of listeners, but listeners, I know you don't need to hear this from me, but don't just listen. Take these conversations away and talk more about it. So, Tim, Mark, thank you. Thank you. So, Anna Greta, what did you think of that? I'm I'm feeling as though I'm just buzzing with ideas after that conversation. What an extraordinary conversation from Tim and from Mark. Uh, I'm so glad we invited them and that we uh, uh, the, the conversation exceeded all of my my best expectations. An extraordinary, great and great conversation. Very pleased to be part of that. And I think it all ties together. It ties from our starting point where we were thinking about how we value caring and whether in response to our our federal government's budget earlier in the year uh, that a wellbeing model might be a better approach for Australia. And you can see some of those themes emerging from today. And I'm drawing a lot on what John Quiggan talked about last week and uh, expanding my understanding of economics, which does remain somewhat rudimentary. 
but that we've gone, uh, we're struck by this dynamic of consumption of goods and actual physical things through to the consumption of information. And I've probably assumed that that has benefits in terms of the environmental impact. But I was really struck by Tim's framing that we've in fact commodified the human life um, and that there are significant consequences for health and well-being and for the meaning that, that we have throughout our existence through that process. Um, and so the commodification of the human existence, I think, was one of the bits that I'll be taking away from that. I did think we, we might consider renaming the series uh, The Universal Basic Income because it's extraordinary how this continues to emerge as a theme for discussion. What were your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I think there is so much to take away from, from that discussion. The issue of the commodification of human existence is just such a fundamentally important issue. And that really does tie in with our thinking about a wellbeing economy. And does that give us another way of thinking about the world? And I guess if you go back to some of the debates around labour and within the International Labour Organisation across the 20th century, you know, it was the position that labour should not be seen as a commodity. But we've kind of lost that entirely and labour has been entirely commodified. Mm. But we're going further. We're commodifying more than labour. You know, it is, as, as either Mark or Tim said, our existence. I think the other part of that is we are not just commodifying the existence of adults, we're commodifying the existence of children, you know, through through social media, through commercialism, through consumption. I think these are really worrying things because we are reproducing these problems uh, for children and, and kind of passing them on through generations. So I think we do have a responsibility to call a halt and to say, how do we start to think differently about some of those issues? Absolutely. And I, you know, I think some of the, the ideas that have come forward in terms of the solutions framework that we've heard from both Mark and from Tim today, I'm again struck by this dynamic between the global problem of this, that problems that we face, that climate change, we often refer to it as a global problem that needs a global solution. But in fact, so much of the solutions framework that excites me in terms of, of what we might do occurs at a local level. It occurs in how we work and care for our communities and, and how we might reimagine our future together. And I think it's about grasping hold of the things that are good about the global and the things that are good about the local. I do think we need to be careful not to romanticise the local because if we kind of look back into history, you know, small local communities have not always been kind to all no. and patterns of inclusion and exclusion and yep. sometimes gross abuse yep. have played out locally as they have globally. So I think it's about looking at these things in a really cold, hard way mm. and saying how do we draw out the best mm. of the global and of the local? Mm. And I think, you know, I was really interested to hear Mark and Tim's comments about um, about the gender issues that I raised, because I think this is something that's often lost. And I think it is true that we need to think beyond trade-offs. But I do think we need to recognise that unless we're very conscious of these issues, there will be trade-offs. Mm. And so while we need to talk about co-benefits, I want us to be a bit more concrete in the way we think about that. So I'm going to keep pushing that issue um, as, we, no, as we have this conversation over the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. And um, we didn't talk about renewable energy. And isn't that yeah. interesting that we've talked yeah. about climate change and our economic approaches to that? Um, and whilst I know everybody acknowledges the importance of that energy transition, that it's, it is a smaller piece of the pie and the broader societal and cultural changes that we might see 
that are exciting, that will improve our health and well-being, that will make our world, I think, a healthier and happier place to be. Uh, that that's what what sort of solutions we see emerging from the conversation we've had today. And I think your excellent framing kind of set us up to be looking um, at a bigger vision than renewable energy. Obviously, that's part of the solution, but I think you you lifted us beyond that. Um, and I'm also really keen to to have a bit more of a look at universal basic income, mm. um, if we can, over this series. You know, as you said, that keeps coming up. There are some real questions about that. I think the how do we pay for a taxation question that Mark raised in such an, an eloquent way is really important. I think we need to to think about universal basic income, but also universal basic services. And I, I think it was Tim that made the point that we have a, a base level of healthcare and education. I'm actually not sure that's true in Australia anymore. I think we do have a lot of people missing out on what really are essential services that should be universal. So is it universal basic income? Is it universal basic services? Is it some combination of both? So Anna Greta, maybe as we go forward, we try to get an expert on universal basic income in to have a chat with us. Absolutely. Work, universal basic income, these are themes that just keep on emerging and I think it'd be great to have a look at that. So listeners, don't go away. Well, you can go away briefly, but come back for the next episode. We've got lots more to discuss as we think about how we might be able to reimagine the world and as we ask whether a well-being economy um, is a way of moving towards a better and a more sustainable world. Now, do reach out to us and do engage in the conversation that was started today. You can find us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us podcast at policyforum.net. But perhaps the best way to join us is to link into our Facebook group. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us right there. And don't forget to leave us a review. That really matters. We love to read them. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows from. So we'll be back next week with another episode in the Wellbeing Economy series. We are going to just tease you a little bit about what that might be, but perhaps poverty and inequality is going to be on our agenda. So stay tuned. Anna Greta, looking forward to the next conversation. Absolutely, Sharon. Let's talk again next week. So bye-bye for me. Bye-bye for me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.